0: Number 340, Jeff has asked that we mark that and we'll use that at the appropriate time in the service this morning. What a joy it is that we've each been granted the opportunity to assemble, not only the membership at Pippin, but the visitors who've come our way today. We hope you feel welcome and that you feel for the service having been an edifying matter. We each always look forward to the opportunity that's ours to worship the great God of heaven who made us and made all things possible for us. In fact, as we come to this part of the lesson today, in fact, in Psalm 29, verse number 2, we read, Give to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship ought to be a lovely enterprise and a fantastic opportunity for us. And so today, we are certainly thankful, my family and I, to be able to be back with the Pippin Church. We were honored to be a part of the gospel meeting at the Union Hill Church in Clay County. We certainly are thankful for all the generosity that they extended to us including among other things a haircut for myself oddly enough but at any rate they also were very kind but we're certainly in a position to have missed our church family and we're very happy to be back here today in light of the lesson you may have noted in the bulletin it's entitled a study of repentance and as brother joy just read for us from the 13th verse of joel chapter 2 we'll turn our attention in just a few moments to one of the features and considerations about this subject of repentance. Isn't it interesting how the aspects of our life are touched in such a remarkable way by the teaching of the Word of God? He addresses the things that we need. He offers us the wisdom, the knowledge, and the encouragement toward matters that do stand as being so vital in our lives. And that not only includes other matters of day-to-day life, of course, but also... It includes our direct response to Him. We might call it the plan of salvation. We might call it what's needed to stand justified and right before Him. One of the things that is a part of that is repentance. It's a word we use from time to time, and it's a word often found in the Bible. But yet in common conversation, we don't use the word repentance very often. This morning, I would invite each of us to give some thought about the subject of repentance. What is it? What does it involve? What does it entail? I think as we study that matter, we'll be led to a clearer understanding of God's Word as it approaches that subject, and it not only will highlight that matter, but also help us day to day to understand more thoroughly and more fully this issue of repentance. It is for that reason that I thought we would set the lesson before us in the following way. Let's first of all give some thought to the placement in the Bible of that subject of repentance, that is to say, reminding ourselves of the vitality of it, and then we'll turn and try to answer the question more fully as to what is it. If you'll notice some of these notes with me, the subject of repentance is highlighted so often in the Word of God, isn't it? In fact, it was a central subject in the preaching of John the Baptist. When he came on the scene as the forerunner of the Messiah, he often, in fact, required and made note of the necessity of repentance. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, a direct message of John, he said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He thus reminded those who were his hearers on that occasion of the impressiveness and the need for their repentance, for the kingdom was shortly to come. We also notice in verse 8 of that same chapter, and also verse 11, the fact that John over and over again even made reference to the baptism of repentance. There can be no question, there can be no doubt that repentance was an important part of the preaching ministry of John the Immerser, but we mustn't stop there. You'll notice it, it also was an important part of the ministry of Jesus. Here was the Son of God who burst on the scene. And as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, He too preached so often and He preached so frequently about repentance. Matthew 4.17, Repent, Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how often did He also bring that subject directly to bear upon those who heard Him? I've listed a few passages for our consideration. In Luke 5, verses 31 and 32, didn't Jesus say, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we all understand that they of that day, and you and I as well, are sinners. And so the Lord calls all of us to repentance. No wonder it's so important that we understand repentance and have an appreciation for it. Even beyond that, you'll notice the Lord on several occasions even asserted a very critical stage he said in Luke thirteen three, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The Lord thus made an absolute ultimatum. If you don't repent, you'll perish, He said. And He reiterated it two verses later in almost identical words, Luke 13, verse 5. In all of those ways, we're beginning, it seems, to feel critically that they of that era and we of today surely must understand it and must obey this commandment to repent. We've only touched, in essence, a part of what's going to come. When Jesus was crucified, and after He was also resurrected, He, of course, gave marching orders to those of that day, and you and I as well, when He said in Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached to I mean, in His name among all nations. Isn't it amazing? He did say repentance should be preached among all nations. Thankfully, you and I today stand beneath the header and beneath the subject of repentance, and it points us to perhaps these commands that are yet to come. In Acts 2 verse 38, When they on Pentecost asked, What shall we do? Peter said, Repent and be baptized. As often as we might lay some emphasis upon baptism, may we never forget He told them to repent too. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, we have maybe one of the quickest passages that comes to our mind on this subject. He said, "...the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained." whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. There we notice there was a time God winked at ignorance, but no longer. Now he commands everybody, everywhere to repent. In light of observation such as that one, doesn't it remind us then of the need that is ours to understand repentance? For as you can, I can see, if I fail to do it, And if I fail to do it correctly, and if I fail to do it properly, then I'm a lost man, plainly and simply. And of course, the same would be true of you. Repentance is highlighted as a part of the gospel plan of salvation. We made note of what Peter commanded a moment ago. What about for a wayward child of God? Aren't they too commanded to repent? Acts 8.22. As you can see, repentance involves our coming to God in the way that He is... Commanded in the way that He is arranged. It is for those kind of reasons that the last set of faults are before us. Repentance was commanded of so many of those churches in Asia in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Repentance was in fact commanded of those even the Lord discussed in Luke the 15th chapter. And it was an occasion of great joy. You see, we ought not look upon repentance as a bad thing, To look upon it as a thing that brings hurtfulness and harm, it ought to bring joy. The angels in heaven are in a position to celebrate when a person repents and when a person follows through the activity required of that repentance. For those reasons, I suppose we've arrived at the time of the lesson to ask, if repentance is so critical and if it is so required, what is it? What does it mean for a person to repent? Let's seek to define it on the ideas on this slide and then seek to make application as well in your life and mine. The question at the top, what in fact is repentance? We have a number of passages to which we can turn to help us appreciate this issue of repentance and might we begin with this observation. Repentance, you see, has relation to that which is evil. In fact, these verses perhaps immediately come before us. Acts 3 verse 19, the second gospel sermon that we have recorded for us. Peter so boldly stood there in Solomon's porch and he plainly said, Repent therefore in turn that the days of refreshing from the Lord may come. Notice they were to repent and in that process it would involve a turning, clearly a turning away from something and a turning toward something else they were to turn from the evil. As you can also see in Acts 8.22, when Simon the sorcerer had attempted to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit and to lay it on by the laying on of his hands, it was Peter who said, "'Repent, therefore, of this, the thought of thine heart.'" And it was cataloged as being, of course, in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. It was a matter that was evil. And Peter even said, "'The wickedness of thine heart is that for which prayer is in order.'" Thus, this matter involves an element of that which God would classify as evil. Maybe one other verse would shed some great light upon that thought. As you can see, it's in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21. Near the close of that 12th chapter of the 2 Corinthian letter, I would invite you to read with me as Paul makes a comment that helps us see the relation of evil to this matter of repentance. Paul wrote in Lest... When I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. You'll notice that repentance was in light of their lasciviousness, their fornication, and their uncleanness. And it was of those things for which they were to indeed repent. Can we not see in light of all of that that this final standard that does help us see what classifies evil is, of course, the Word of God. It has ever been that way, hasn't it? In 1 John 3 verse 4, we see there that whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Given that sin is that which is evil, and God's Word identifies that which is transgressed, we see it's to God's Word that we must find. If we have violated anything in it, repentance is required of you and me. If I have missed the mark on any point that God has set forth, if I have failed in regard to any commandment He has given, if I have failed in whatever He's commanded me to do, then I've missed the mark, guilty of sin, I'm in need of repentance. All of that points us to some of these realities. First of all, repentance involves leaving a former way of thinking, a former way of behavior. Perhaps at time I was under the impression that something could be done or something may not ought to be done, but upon further learning, I came to see that I violated God's will. Maybe it was due to some particular way that I considered things. Maybe it was due to what I had thought the Word of God said in all honesty. That doesn't matter. If I've missed the mark or failed to appreciate that which God said, being guilty of sin... There is a need in my life of repentance. These verses, I think, will assist us as we look at that matter. As you can see, for godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Might we be able to appreciate in that there certainly is an element of sorrow. Where does the sorrow arise? It arises because I violated the will of God. And as such, I stand aloof from Him, separated from His graciousness and love. And in that state, I'm distanced from Him. Isaiah 59 reads it like this, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Isn't it a tragic thing? to appreciate finally that I am apart from Him. I'm distanced from Him because of the things I've done, the things I've said, the places I've gone, the things I have endorsed and encouraged. All the while, if that's descriptive of my life, then again, I'm in need of repentance. Just as surely as that repentance involves, this leaving of a former way of thinking, that sorrow and regret as it accompanies it, challenges us, this weighs heavily upon the heart, doesn't it? I suppose, as you and I think, what is a person feeling when he finally comes to realize that I'm a lost person? I have turned my back upon the Son of God, Jesus, the one that died for me. I'm covered over in sin, but yet He shed His blood that I might be forgiven. That is something that weighs heavily upon the heart and mind. And when a person realizes that, it's no wonder that sorrow will engulf him. But it goes beyond just a feeling of sorrow, doesn't it? For it did say that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Sorrow is only a part of it. Repentance is more than just a feeling of sorriness. I'm sorry for what I did. It seems to involve far, far more than that. In fact, couldn't it be said that not only is there a turning away from that which is evil, there must be a turning to that which is right. Let's in fact reiterate that again. Repentance involves a turning away from that which now one understands from the word of God to be evil and a turning to that which He has commanded and that which should be descriptive of those who love and serve Him. So this idea of repentance seems clearly to relate to turning from a couple of perspectives. Let's look at some of these verses for a moment. In Acts chapter 26 verse 20, As Paul at that time in his life was on his way toward Rome, on his way toward standing before the Caesar, he made this interesting statement indicative of the character of repentance. Again, Acts chapter 26, verse number 20. Paul wrote, or rather Luke wrote of this life of Paul, Speaking of Christ, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, And then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. It was this matter of presentation from the Apostle Paul that these, as he said, should repent and turn to God and furthermore do works meet. That is to say befitting of or suitable of or demonstrative of repentance. There are works involved in repentance. Isn't it amazing that sometimes you and I might be tempted to forget that point? Works involved in repentance. Perhaps that idea should lead us to this point. That repentance surely is a change of mind that represents itself in a change of action, a change of behavior, a change of appreciation in one's life. When you and I thus repent... As you can see, it's more than just a mental assent to that fact that I now believe something. It really should manifest itself, shouldn't it, in a change of one's behavior. His viewpoint toward matters now is different. Whereas he may once have encouraged or at least tolerated, gave approval of something, now he will not. Now he appreciates from the Word of God that that which formerly I at least innocently endorsed is opposed to the Word of God and I will not defend it any longer. Paul, in fact, said, "Turn unto God" in the act of that re- means of repentance in Acts twenty-six. For those reasons, perhaps it challenges us to take this a step further. And can we ask a bit more about that matter of works? What's involved in it? Perhaps this slide will assist us in that regard. I've written near the top of it that repentance, as we've noted. As the Bible teaches, it is more than just a mental statement, well, now I don't believe that way anymore. It does involve activity that surrounds that conviction, activity that surrounds now that concerted belief of what the Bible now teaches. It is for that reason that this is the issue that sometimes in our world is a failure, isn't it? Maybe you and I have known individuals who, upon their claim of repentance, it seems that matters in life didn't change. Things seem to be as they were before. Sometimes that can be a problem, can't it? And maybe you and I at times not only have witnessed it, but it's been something that has been a temptation for for perhaps even us. Repentance really is that concerted change in mind that represents itself by a changed behavior, a change in lifestyle. What formerly I did, I've now changed in that. Sometimes in life that can be a challenge too, can't it? Things that become so ingrained and that way of life seems so natural and easy, in light of repentance it needs to change. Here are some other verses or thoughts that at least challenge us in that regard. As I've written these things for us, when there is wrong that has been done, Should there be restoration when it is at all possible? Here are some thoughts that move us toward at least a consideration of that. In Luke 19, beginning in verse 8, that was the scene surrounding the man of short stature, Zacchaeus, who climbed up into that tree because the Lord was passing by. That man was so blessed with a conversation with the Lord that day, but as a part of his conversion, or at least a part of his reflection to the truth of Jesus, he said... I will restore in large part that which if I have taken wrongly from anybody. You can also see in Matthew 7 verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would do that men should do unto you, do even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. The fantastic thing about all of that concerning repentance is how challenging it all can be. There is a particular passage, it seems to me, that it sheds so much light upon repentance, I'd ask that we read all of it. It's found in Matthew 21. Let's read it and then see if it doesn't revisit to our mind much of what we've learned so far this morning. In Matthew 21, beginning in verse 28, repentance. This is one of the critical elements in the presentation of what the Lord now says. Jesus said, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? Verse 31. And they, uh, and they say unto him the first, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto thee, unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe him. There was a father that had two sons. He came to one of them and said, Son, go today into my vineyard and work. The boy said, I will not. But afterward, it says, he repented and went. He came to the other boy and said, go likewise into the vineyard today and work. And that boy said, okay, I'll do it, Dad. But then he didn't go. And Jesus used that in verses 31 and 32 to ask this question, which of the two boys did what the father requested and what the father ordered? They naturally said, well, the first one did. And the Lord used that to convict and convince them The publicans and harlots are going to go into the kingdom before you because they've repented and you haven't. Now what is the definition of repentance based on that presentation by Jesus? The boy said, I won't go. The old first one did, but then the text says he repented and he went. So he changed his mind with regard to what he had said, but he followed through on that which he had promised. That which in fact involved in the repentance. He would said, I won't go, but upon repentance he went. And they even agreed he did the will that his father requested. What does that highlight to you and me about the involvement that is related to repentance? Doesn't it thus clearly teach us that surely there's a change in mind, but it manifests itself by a change in behavior, a change in lifestyle? Whatever it was that was evil, I no longer endorse it, participate in it, or encourage it. Whatever it was that was missing, I now fill that with what the Lord has commanded. Those thoughts challenge us mightily. That repentance is not a matter of lip service, is it? It isn't just enough to, in fact, make a statement. It needs to be backed up with a change in my life. A change in that behavior that is shown to be the truth of God. All of that that we've looked at so far and these verses that have touched the subject of repentance perhaps point us to the reality of some remarks as we try to apply this matter of repentance to to our lives. Given its necessity, given the place that it holds, given how needful it is, here are some thoughts that I think will help us as we think about applying the Lord's teaching on the subject of repentance. It is so easy... For each of us, to fall under the heading of a realization that something isn't quite right with our life with God, to know that some element in repentance is needed, but maybe we give lip service only to it. Here's some thoughts that might assist us. First of all, may we always realize the urgency of the teaching of God. It's not light. To miss it is not like missing something in this world. There are many things at work that you and I might find that we just aren't able to get to. There might be something we understand is important to do, but due to the constraints of the day and the other demands that come, I just don't get around to it. Well, that'll always be waiting tomorrow. Your soul's salvation and mine may not wait till tomorrow. You see, we aren't promised tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, the Proverbs writer wrote in Proverbs 27, verses 1 and 2. We notice then we must ever understand the urgency and the greatness of the error when we've missed the mark in regard to the God's teaching. It is not a light thing. It's not a trivial matter. It's not something to overlook and just appreciate that it'll work its way out somehow. It won't work its way out unless we repent. As you can see in that opening statement, we must then have conviction concerning not only what God's Word has said, but the need in our life of the repentance of that which is evil. But not only that, consider this. There is going to be a need for a measure of sorrowfulness over it. When we come to realize that there's sin in our life, it should break our heart. It should cause us to greatly ponder the seriousness of where we now stand. I am apart from God. Is it any wonder in James 5 verses 19 and 20, on that occasion, James pointed to the directness of this statement, that a person in the realization of sin, those that are faithful should seek to and strive to cover the multitude of sins and to approach that one in love hopefully restoring him to that place of favor with God. Isn't it amazing the nature of just how earnest and how serious matters like that can be? Godly sorrow because we have offended our Maker. Now sometimes when we know we've disappointed our parents, it hurts inside, doesn't it? Maybe you and I have been there at some point in life. I did something that disappointed Dad. Maybe he gave me something to do. Due to my laziness, I didn't do it. Had no good reason for not doing it. And when he comes home, son, I just thought better of you than that. What have you done today? And yet to think that we may respond in that kind of way toward that which our Father may be and our respect to Him. And yet maybe our Heavenly Father has said something and we treat Him even worse. And yet it seems not to bother us. May we each always have a conscience that will be bothered when we have violated this book. When we've done something in which we have made ourselves stand distanced from our Maker. It's a beautiful consideration in many ways, isn't it? It is that very idea that Jeremiah used on one occasion to challenge the people of his day. Perhaps we each remember the scene in Jeremiah 35 when the Rechabites were individuals who God through Jeremiah said, "...these Rechabites have such love and such admiration and such respect for their earthly father that they have maintained fidelity and they have maintained obedience to what He commanded them for generations. And yet my people of Israel have forgotten me, ignored me, disobeyed me, and they think nothing of it. not that an exactly parallel matter? He said, if only you, Israel, could treat me like the Rechabites treat their father, all would be fine. Our Father in heaven does love us. He only wants what's best for us here and what's best for us hereafter. And so He urges us to ever have a tender capability of repentance. But not only should we understand the urgency and have sorrow for it, if that behavior that has been in our life is something that others know about, if it's something that is of knowledge to a few, they need to appreciate our change in heart. They need to be made aware that though I at this time endorsed, encouraged, participated in, I no longer do under my love for the truth of God. Then they need to be made aware of the fact and apprised of the fact that this change has has taken place. And I've done so because God has commanded it. Perhaps you and I have remembered many occasions when an individual will come before us at the proper time when a hymn of invitation is sung and make a confession, sometimes about things of which they're not proud, things that have been amiss in their life, and they plead for us to uh, to pray with them in light of their repentance for God's forgiveness. And we're always honored and happy to do that. James did say, "...confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." James 5.16 Thus, when we've wronged someone and we're standing in need of repentance, we need to let them know that change is in order in terms of what we have done and that we no longer want to be that same kind of individual that wronged them, hurt them, offended them in a way apart from the Word of God. That kind of idea is, again, one that sometimes weighs heavily upon us. In our world, it's not so common for folks to admit mistakes. Our political leaders seem often to rather not do that, cover it up as long as possible, hope the winds of change will blow it by and I'll never have to address it. And maybe in personal life, that too can be a temptation. But the Lord says we, in the act of repentance, need to do better than that. They need to know that I've changed. And maybe in light of that change, I can be a better example to them. Isn't it true that when the world perceives the church as a hypocrite, you and I in that way, they often have little interest in being a part of what we're a part of. Thus, they need to see genuineness in us. And when we've wronged them, they need to know that we are admitting it and that we want to make it right and that we do not endorse what we once did. Perhaps in the fourth case you might know that sometimes we also see that there are many reasons, or perhaps excuses, I should say, as to why individuals might prefer not to make any public statement. I want to protect what I have set up. I want to save face, if you please. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. I don't want to give the impression that this other person behaved better than I did. But isn't it true that we each make mistakes? There is none righteous, no, not one, in the words of Romans 3.10. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Certainly we try and should be trying our best to live as God would have us to, but when there are things amiss, repentance is going to be needed because God commands it. If our behavior before others has been of that character, we should seek to let them know in love and in earnestness that we've changed. Not to be proudful in display before them, of course, but to ever be of a disposition simply to allow that godly sorrow to work repentance. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10. It might be in light of that that we could certainly say, that very last point I've written on the slide, that repentance as we have seen, it really can be the case that there's a tendency in the world, a temptation for it not to be genuine not to show itself in the change of action or behavior. And that's where the lesson text brings us full circle this morning. Joel, as he addressed some of the problems of his day, again, God through him simply said, "'Rend your hearts and not your garments.'" It was so easy to make a public display in that day of repentance, to put sackcloth and ashes upon you and for everyone to say, "'Oh, look how penitent he is.'" Look at how tempting he is to live right when in fact your heart may not have changed a bit. It could be you put on an outward display and so everyone thinks one has repented. But God through Joel said, that kind of behavior is not the necessary repentance. The people of Judah, those to whom Joel was writing, they were already marching in a way so different than what God had wished them to do. When that plague of locusts came upon them, God said this is a reminder in judgment of the fact you have turned aside from me. And God says in order to make things right, rend your heart and not your garments. It isn't enough just to wear sackcloth and ashes and rip your clothes to make a public display. Where is your heart? Tear your heart instead so that you can then refill it with what God would have you to fill it with. Isn't that God's message of repentance? Isn't it all throughout the sacred scriptures, both Old and New Testament, highlighted in ways much like that? Oh, what a setting then we read. And oh, what a concluding message of God we read in Jeremiah 29, 13, and Psalm 119, verse number 2. Blessed are they that keep His commandments, and that seek Him with a whole heart. That's the Psalms passage. In Jeremiah 29, 13, He said, You will seek Me, and you will find Me when you search for me with all your heart. When we search for God with all of our heart and let repentance be the order of how we respond when we're distanced from Him, we too will lovingly remain near Him, always aware of what's involved when sin comes our way and when we find ourselves separated from Him. Today, it might be there's one or more in this audience that now realizes, perhaps you have for some time, that things between you and God just are not as they ought to be. Maybe you have been derelict or disobedient in terms of many of the things He's commanded. Maybe you have failed to do good things He has commanded. Either way, will you not hear the Lord's plea to you that you need to repent? Will you not hear the necessity of changing that way of behavior and turning your life over to God? We here would be more than honored to assist you today in your reaction to an obedience to the plan of salvation. If you've never been baptized realize one of its prerequisites is repentance. Hear the words of Jesus, repent of the sins in your life, confess His glorious name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could help you today in that way, oh, what a great day it'd be for you. If you have been a Christian, and at one time the faithfulness was seen by all who observed your life in its truthfulness, but that isn't true anymore, why not come back to your first love today? just like those in Ephesus were told in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. If we could be of assistance to pray on your behalf today, we'd certainly be honored to do that. And if either of these would be the need of your life, will you not let it be known if you would? While together we stand and while we sing the chosen hymn.